And so this morning we are at chapter 13, verses 21 through 38. That's on page 900 of the ESV Pew Bibles, chapter 13, 21 through 38. Making our way through the Gospel of John. We just started the Book of Glory. And we are over the halfway mark. This is John 13, starting at verse 21. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why. He said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. When he had gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself, and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you, you will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, so you also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, Where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we we look to your word this morning and we look in dependency upon you. We ask for the illuminating power of the Holy Spirit. Please show us what we need to see in your word. Give us the ability to, to see the truth that is contained in your word and also the ability to apply it. Father, we, we desperately want to be those who not only hear the word, but also do the word. So, Father, this is our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. Francisco José de Goya was a Spanish painter who lived from 1746 to 1828. He was considered the most important and influential painter of the 18th and 19th centuries. 
He is sometimes referred to as the last of the old masters. His paintings have sold anywhere from between 2.8 million to 16.4 million. So you can imagine how excited the Fogg Art Museum in Cambridge, Massachusetts was when a family bequeathed to them in 1943 a, a genuine Goya original. But soon after receiving the painting, some began to doubt its authenticity. So in 1954, they began running tests. An x-ray diffraction analysis revealed the presence of zinc white paint, which was not invented until after Goya's death. The painting, titled Portrait of a Woman, was a fake. Rather than being worth millions, it, it really wasn't worth anything at all. Fake means a forgery, a counterfeit, not genuine. Judas had fake faith, which means he was a fake follower of Jesus. And fake faith is like a, faith, a, a fake painting. It's, it's really not worth anything at all. As we take a look at the second half of John chapter 13, we're going to see how Judas and his fake faith fooled everyone except Jesus, of course. We're going to read about the Father and the Son glorifying one another. What Jesus calls a new commandment to love one another. And then finally, Peter's pledge of loyalty at the very end of chapter 13. So this passage shows us what fake faith looks like, but it also shows us that God calls us to real faith, to real love for one another, and to a real dependency upon Jesus Christ. In verse 21, we, we begin and we, we rejoin Jesus and his disciples, and this still is the last night together. We talked last week about how it was the last night together for Jesus and his disciples. It still is. He's still teaching them. He's still equipping them. He's still correcting them. He's still uh, challenging them. And he's getting these men ready to lead the apostolic church. And John tells us that Jesus was troubled in spirit, meaning he was unsettled emotionally in his human nature. Well, troubled over what? Context tells us Judas's betrayal. But we really have to also add to that what his betrayal is going to lead to. So this betrayal of Judas is going to set off a, a rapid fire chain of events that leads directly to the cross. And that was troubling, to say the least. Jesus testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Now Jesus had already made some comments to the twelve and had kind of hinted at this. Back in 13.10, he said not every one of them was clean. 13.18, uh, in reference to the twelve, he, he assigned Psalm 41. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. But it didn't really seem like the disciples, when they heard those words, knew quite what to do with them. They, they, they weren't getting the full picture. They didn't clearly understand what he meant. Maybe they thought he was talking about somebody else 
other than the twelve. After all, Jesus, excuse me, Jesus had acquired several enemies in, in and around Jerusalem. So maybe they thought his enemies were outside the inner circle. Or perhaps they thought Jesus had it covered. After all, if he can raise someone from the dead, surely he can handle an isolated act of betrayal. But even as they didn't really understand him before, verse 21 21 makes it kind of hard to miss. Jesus, first of all, draws attention to it by saying, truly, truly, so he marks it as as giving and and receiving special attention. So their their ears are, are tuned in. And then he says, in very plain language, one of you will betray me. Doesn't get much clearer than that. And we see their response in verse 22 as they sit there and kind of look at each other in silence, uncertain of whom he spoke. Astonishment? Suspicion? Now that Jesus has said these words, as as it begins to sink in, it's almost as if they're thinking, wait, what? You, You mean one of us? You mean somebody like right here around the table? Oh, Wait a minute. Hold on just, just a minute. Um, they, were, they were realizing that Jesus meant right now. He meant one of them was going to betray them. And this tells us that Judas was very good at faking his faith. If anybody was able to discern fake faith, if anybody was able to, to, to look around and tell if somebody was a real follower of Jesus or not, you would think it would be the people that spend the last three years with them. And they had no idea. Judas had been blending in with his fake faith for three years. One of the disciples whom Jesus loved, this is John, this is the author of the book, this is his um, anonymous self-designation he uses for himself, he uses it here in 1920, he uses it twice in, in chapter 21. He was reclining at table at Jesus' side. I think we've all seen the famous Last Supper painting by Da Vinci. We know what, you know what I'm talking about. It's that, that very famous painting where they're all seated around the table. That's inaccurate. The Bible says they were reclining at table, not seated. This was one of the ways that people ate meals in the first century. They, they laid down on their side, maybe kind of propped up on, on one elbow. So it says they were reclining. And because of John's position next to Jesus, Peter, wherever he is seated, gets John's attention and does one of these. Just, mm, mm. Ask him. Ask him who it is. And so John leans in. They have a quick private exchange. And after giving the bread to Judas, it says that Satan entered into Judas. Now we know that Satan had already been at work in his heart. Uh, John 13.2 says, During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. So Satan's been working on Judas. But here it says, Satan entered him. And the sense is a complete filling, a complete hardening, a complete possession, and also on Judas's part, a complete surrendering to, to the will of the devil. So Satan had been active in Judas's heart. Prior to this, at this point, Satan fills his heart. 
And Jesus responds by saying, what you are going to do, do quickly. So Jesus recognizes that this has happened, that Judas has given himself over to the power of the devil. And there's really no more point in Judas faking his faith anymore. And Jesus realizes that this is the time. He realizes and he has said, my hour has come. This is the time for my glorification. This is the time for the cross. So Judas, uh, you've given yourself over to this task. You might as well go ahead and get to it. Continued confusion among the rest of the disciples. And John tells us what some of them were thinking. Maybe he sent him on an errand. Maybe he has to buy something. But none of them knew who the betrayer was. And this means that it was extremely difficult for even the strongest of believers to identify fake faith. It's been observed by many people that when Jesus instituted the first Lord's Supper, that not everyone around the table was a believer. And that's true. Likewise, not everyone who comes to Christ's church today and and comes to the table is a genuine believer. In other words, sometimes people come to the table with, with faith, excuse me, with fake faith. Now, some people might respond to this and say, you know what, uh, that, that shouldn't be. We need to make sure that everybody who, who comes to the table is a genuine follower and, and we need to take steps to make sure if you're coming to the table, you are part of Jesus' true New Testament, New Covenant spiritual community. So let's, let's do whatever we need to do, but we can't have anybody with fake faith coming to the table. Well, the problem with that, of course, is that there is no way that any of us or anyone else can discern with 100% accuracy who has real faith and who has fake faith. The elders, the overseers of the church, who have been put there by Christ for many duties, but one of them is to admit, and when necessary, under the right circumstances, bar people from the table. But in this context, we're talking about admitting people from the table But the elders of any particular local church do not have the ability to peer into someone's heart and to discern whether or not their faith is fake or real. They just can't do that. None of us are omniscient. God can. God knows all things at all time, and he always has, but we cannot. So when the elders admit people to the Lord's table, what they're looking for is a credible profession of faith. Okay, this is extremely important to realize. I remember talking with a, a, an otherwise spiritually mature brother who did not understand this. And, and he thought that the elders, when they met with people to admit them to the table, were, were trying to discern if their faith was genuine or real. And that, and that somehow, because, I, I don't know, I guess they thought they were super spiritual elders or something, that they were able to make that call and admitting to the to the table, and in doing that, they were saying this person's faith is real. That is not what's going on. Let's be very clear on that. When when elders admit someone to the table, they're not they're not leaning back and, and looking them over and say, yeah, okay, I think I think it's real. I will now admit you to the table. That's not what's going on. A credible profession of faith, because we are not omniscient, because elders are not God, they can only go by what they see, what is visible and what they hear, 
what is audible. So what they're looking for at any elder at, at any church, they're looking for a profession of faith in Christ. They're looking for that confession. They're looking for Jesus as Lord. They're looking for, for evidence, testimony that that person talks about how they came to faith, how their faith in Christ is real, what Christ means to them. If they understand the cross, they're, they're listening for that. And then they're looking to see if their life matches their talk. Now, they're not looking that deeply. Nobody, nobody's going to anybody's house and, and doing an in-depth investigation. They're going by what they, they see on Sunday morning, what they see in interactions. They're going, about, going by what their, their family members are reporting or not reporting. So they're, they're not able to, to, to see into hearts or to see in their lives. They're going by what they can see and what they can hear. And if someone's faith, their, their, their profession and their confession of Christ as well as, the, as their life, as there's not something glaringly in contradiction to their profession, then they say, yes, you're admitted to the Lord's table. However, if someone says, um, I'd like to come to the Lord's table, but, you know, I don't, you know, I, I kind of believe Jesus is one of the ways to God, and I think as long as you're sincere in your faith, then it doesn't really matter, but I'm, I believe in him, so I want to come to the table. Well, no, that's, that's not real faith. Or if they come to, to the elders, elders and say, I would like to come to the table and I profess Christ, but in their life they're living in ongoing unrepentant sin, something that's very self-evident that they are not living according to Christ. They're contradicting their, their, their profession by their way of life. Then also the elders have to say, no, that's not a credible profession of faith. So let's make sure we understand that. And, and I, I want to point out, at the very first Lord's Supper, there was someone who was not genuine in their faith. And tragically, throughout the centuries, there have been others that have come to the table that have had fake faith. And that's ultimately why, in any faithful church, the minister is to fence the table. You'll hear me do that today, later when we go to the table. And you hopefully have heard that at other faithful churches. The reason we do that is because we realize that the, the elders are not... Um, perfect. The elders do not have that ability to see someone's heart. So even un after admitting someone to the table, uh, or if there's just someone in general sitting in the congregation who's not a member, the pastor or the minister fences the table with language direct directly from Scripture. You'll hear me read from 1 Corinthians 11. And the reason we do that is because Paul does that. And the reason we do that, and the reason Paul does that is because it's for the people's spiritual good. He doesn't want anybody coming to the table with fake faith, and neither do we. Well, verse 30, Judas leaves the table. It said he went out from Jesus, and it was night. And this has a twofold meaning. He said it was night. First of all, Judas is going out into the darkness, literally, but he was also going deeper into the spiritual darkness. He's descending down into greater spiritual darkness. It doesn't get much darker than betraying the Son of God. And then secondly, it was night. This, this spiritual darkness is talking about Jesus' hour. This is the hour of his darkness. This is his night that he now has to endure. Verses 31 and 32, Father and Son glorified. It says, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. 
So if you were here last week, you remember uh, hearing about the book of signs and the book of glory. The book of signs, uh, chapter 1 through 12, book of glory, chapter 13 through 20. We are now in the book of glory. And the reason it's called book of glory is because Jesus's cross work, his, his passion, his death, his, his resurrection, all that is, is referred to in John as his glorification. So this is the, the second half. It covers all that. That's why it's called the book of glory. And this is what Jesus has in mind right here. When he says, now is the son of man glorified, he means now is the time for me to go to the cross. Or the, the hour of my crucifixion is now at hand. That's what he's talking about. He continues, and God is glorified in him. Jesus' crucifixion glorifies the Father. How? Because there is no other time or place or event that more clearly reveals or displays and magnifies the attributes of God like the cross. There is nothing that magnifies the nature and character of God like the cross of Jesus Christ. At the cross, we see God's holiness. We see his justice. We see his mercy. We see his grace. We see his wrath. We see his goodness. And all those attributes of God are made manifest at the cross and they are magnified so that God is glorified. Nowhere else do they shine like they do on the cross. So Jesus is saying, if God, meaning God the Father, is glorified in him, meaning God the Son, and he is, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. So this is saying, if Jesus glorifies God the Father with his actions on the cross, then God, will, God the Father will take action and glorify the Son. And it will happen immediately. It will happen at once. And that's exactly what we see after Jesus' death came his exaltation. After describing how Jesus was obedient to the Father all the way to the point of death, even death on a cross, Paul says this in Philippians, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed, <coughs> excuse me, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Also, in Ephesians, Paul talking about God the Father glorifying the Son after the cross, he says this, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. So what we are seeing here, when we see Jesus, <coughs> excuse me, when we see Jesus talking about the Son glorifying the Father and then the Father reciprocating and glorifying the Son, we are seeing a glimpse of what's called the intra-Trinitarian love. We're seeing that the Father loved the Son, the Son loved the Father. And it's not just confined to the Father and the Son. It extends to the Holy Spirit. It's all persons of the Godhead. 
Intra-Trinitarian love is the love expressed perfectly within the persons of the Trinity towards each other. And that's what we're seeing. That's what we're seeing between the Father and the Son and all this talk of glorification going back and forth. And what I want us to note here is the order of that glorification concerning the Son. Jesus will suffer on the cross. Then the Father will grant him exalted status. So suffering first, exaltation second. You've heard me say that from the pulpit numerous times. Here it is again. Suffering first, exaltation second. That's how it works for Jesus. That's how it works for Jesus' followers. One of our regular prayers should be asking God to forgive us for thinking that we can bypass suffering in this life. Father, forgive us for thinking that you should be doing a better job of smoothing out our life for us. Forgive us when we grumble against you in our heart because we've had too much pain, too much suffering, too much difficulty or hardship in this life. If we want to follow Christ, then we need to follow the path of Christ. And that's suffering first, exaltation second. Verse 33 is kind of sandwiched in between the the intra-Trinitarian love and, and the new commandment. This is still the last night together, and he's bracing them for the changes that are coming. I'm leaving. You can't come with me. Things are going to be different. Where I'm going, you cannot come. And then the new commandment teaching, verses 34 and 35. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. Now sometimes uh, believers stumble over this verse because they say, wait a minute, Um, I'm not so sure loving other people is a new commandment. Uh, After all, doesn't the Old Testament uh, command us to, to love people? And the answer is, Yes, of course it does. Leviticus 19.18 says, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And of course, neighbor is pretty much everyone who God places in our path. And in Mark 12, Jesus taught that loving your neighbor as yourself is second only to loving God. So in that sense, loving people is not a new commandment or a new thing, which leaves us with the question, well, then what did he mean by that? How is this a new commandment? Commandment, And the answer is twofold. It has a new focus and it has a new example. First, new focus. The new focus that Jesus is giving this command is to love one another, meaning other believers, other brothers and sisters in Christ. The new commandment is focusing on the new covenant community, the church. We are to love other disciples of Jesus in a Christ-like manner that surpasses or eclipses the way we love all people in general. So it's not calling us to love other people less. It's calling us to love those in the church more. A new example. That's the new focus, the the brothers and sisters. The new example, just as I have loved you. There's the new example. So you're also to love one another. Well, how did Jesus love the 11 disciples? He loved them with a love that was sacrificial, unconditional, continual, was accompanied by concrete examples and ultimately to the glory of God. So yes, we are called to love the world. We're called to love our enemies, even. 
But that love is expressed in things like evangelism and uh, patience, in praying for them, in withholding any kind of retaliation, and just in general kindness toward, towards others. The love that Jesus is commanding here within the covenant community, according to example, is beyond the love that we would love the world with in general. It's to model Christ's love. It's that sacrificial, continual, unconditional, concrete examples to the glory of God type of love. So believers are commanded to love one another. And this is a new commandment because it had a new focus and a new example. And then he says, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. In other words, this, this, this love, this, this Christ-like love that the church is to show one another is supposed to be so evident, so visible, that anybody on the outside looking in is going to be able to see it. How many local churches can say that? How many local churches can say our, our love for one another is so strong and evident that an outsider would be able to detect it? I was visiting a church several years ago and they were bringing in a consultant. They were paying big money for this guy from California to come in and, and give them his assessment. So he was trying to tell them what they were doing right, what they were doing wrong, what, what they could do better. And um, the, the contact, this, this big money, was essentially for three hours, a Saturday morning meeting. So here he was, the big guy from California. And they brought in the elders and the deacons and some of the staff and some key congregational members. And it was time to um, give some feedback on, on how the church thought it was doing. And as soon as they started, they began criticizing each other. They began using words like weak and ineffective and struggling to describe one another. They, they had phrases that were starting to, to fly around the room like don't know what they're doing and anybody could do a better job than they are. These are the things that were going around within the leaders of the church. And the consultant stood there with his eyes wide open. And of course, his job was very easy at that point. He said, it's, it's obvious that you've got some internal issues going on here. They didn't have the love of Christ for one another. He said, it doesn't even look like you can stand to be in the same room with each other. Let alone love one another with Christ-like love. Now, this command does not mean that every believer has to be best friends with every other believer. It doesn't mean that if you personally don't have every single other person over to your house for dinner, then you're somehow sinning or failing this command. Jesus said that this love, which should be modeled, should be prevalent in the church so that outsiders will be able to see it as they look in. And the best way to apply this is not to look around the church or to look at other people and say, I'm not sure if I see it in them. Well, they might be doing it. They're, they're okay. No, the best way is to look at ourselves and ask the question, am I modeling this type of love? Am I following this commandment? Am I loving one another, my brothers and sisters, in a way that is self-evident so that others will detect it? Finally, Peter's pledge, verse 36 Look at, look at what Peter keys in on. We, we just came, all that weighty teaching 
on, on the Father and the Son glorifying one another, the intra-Trinitarian love between the Godhead, the, the new commandment with the new focus and the new example. And what does Peter key on? Where are you going? Jesus said, where I'm going, you cannot come. Peter says, Lord, wh- where are you going? All that other stuff seems to fall into the background. He wants to know where he's going. Jesus repeats himself, where I'm going, you cannot follow me, but you will follow me afterwards. In other words, it's not time for you to die yet, Peter. Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you, is what he says. He's saying, I'm not afraid of anything. There is literally nowhere you can go that I won't follow you. I I am ready to sacrifice my life for you. And look at Jesus' response. Will you? Will you lay down your life for me? Hmm. And I wonder how long he let that hang in the air. I wonder how long Jesus allowed their eyes to lock and just ask the question, Will you? Lay down your life for me, huh? Hmm. How's this sound instead? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow until you have denied me three times. What a blow to Peter. Here is a lesson for all of us. Loyalty is unknown until it is tested. You just can't tell for sure. You want to know where someone's loyalty lies? Wait till it gets tested. Wait till they get in the pressure cooker. Then you'll find out who's loyal to what or to who. Peter's pledge was part zeal, part confidence, part bravado. The the problem was Peter did not have an accurate self-understanding. He did not know his own heart. He did not know his own limits. He didn't know his own fears. He didn't know his own weakness. He thought he had the spiritual strength to deliver on that pledge. But we don't have spiritual strength. We have Jesus. Paul in 2 Corinthians, quoting Christ and then commenting, says this, My grace is sufficient for you, For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. You see, Peter made his pledge trusting in his own strength. He did not yet understand that any spiritual strength that we think we might have is a fake. And it's really not worth anything at all. Later this same night, just in the next couple of chapters, in John 15, 5, Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, if you're separated from me, You you can do nothing. We cannot follow Christ in our own spiritual strength. We have no spiritual strength. We have Christ. It's not us. 
It is only through our union with Christ that we can accomplish anything. If we asked uh, one of the deacons, if we asked the strongest deacon, and we won't argue who that is, but if we, had, if we asked the strongest deacon to come up here and lay down on the, on the front, and we had them grab them by their, by their belt, just using their arms, said, okay, now lift yourself up. That might be mildly entertaining for a couple of seconds as they struggle, but we would all know the outcome of that. It's not happening. It doesn't matter how strong you are. No one can lift themselves up with their own arm. That's what it looks like when we try to progress in our spiritual life under our own fake spiritual strength. The only way to move forward is to practice a real dependency upon Jesus Christ. Or to put it another way, can you sanctify yourself? Can you defeat persistent sin on your own? Can you genuinely love other brothers and sisters in Christ with Christ-like love without Christ? We always have to remain in and abide in Christ. If, if you want to make progress in your Christian walk, pray and repent of your pride, repent of your confidence and your own strength and your own abilities, confess your weakness, acknowledge your dependency upon Christ, and ask for Jesus' power to rest upon you as you follow him, and as you meekly submit to him and his lordship. Um, we, we can no more stay strong in the Lord and, and loyal to Jesus in our own strength than we can lift ourselves up off the floor with one arm. It just can't be done. And then finally, if there's anyone here this morning who is not a follower of Jesus Christ, I need to state the obvious. Without faith in Christ, you are spiritually lost. Ephesians says you are dead. You are dead in your sins. John 3 says if, if you have not believed in the Son, then you stand condemned before God. You stand condemned in your sins before God. And the only thing that you have to look forward to is God's wrath poured out upon you for eternity for your sin. That's where you are without Christ. The only thing that saves people from the wrath of God is faith in Jesus Christ, in his righteousness, in his substitutionary death on our behalf on the cross. That's where our faith is put, in, in Jesus Christ, in his cross work. God demands perfect righteousness. You are not perfect. I am not perfect. Jesus is perfect. You'll hear this oftentimes. This is a very common thing to hear among unbelievers or people who think they are but really aren't. They'll say, well, yeah, I, th I think I'm good enough. Or at least I'm not that bad. I can point to several examples of people who are a lot more, a lot more bad or, or worse than I am. So, yeah, I think in the end um, I'll, I'll be good enough. God, God will say I've been good enough. Good enough is not going to cut it. God doesn't want good enough. He wants perfect. Jesus is the only one who is perfect. We put our faith in Jesus Christ's perfect work on our behalf, not in ourselves. We can never be good enough because we can never be perfect. 
But you also need to understand this. Fake faith does not save. There is such a thing as fake faith, and that is powerlessness against the power of sin. Fake faith is like the fake Goya painting. It's, it's not worth anything at all. It's not, it's not going to do you any good. Fake faith is what Judas had. Judas was able to fool a lot of people with his fake faith. Judas was able to say the right things. Judas was able to do the right things. Judas was able to look the part. Judas was able to blend in. Judas was, was at the right places, like church, at the right time. Judas was, was able to associate with the right people. He was, he was rubbing shoulders with, with the closest of disciples. He was rubbing, rubbing shoulders with Jesus. Yet his faith was fake, and it did not save him. The good news is this. While fake faith is worthless, real faith is priceless. Jesus says in Matthew 16, 26, For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? It's a rhetorical question. There is nothing in this world that is more valuable than real faith. Because real faith is the only thing that saves. Let me close with this. The eternal state of your soul depends on how you respond to Jesus Christ. So respond with real faith. Amen.